Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here on a sublime autumn morning in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller here in a very ordinary grey morning in south-east London. Now we've got a, somebody coming back for a second innings, Lingard Goulding. Lingard, welcome back. You're very kind, Richard. I speak from a, a grey county mead or summer morning. First of all, though, it's my job to welcome back Peter from Pakistan and to ask how was Pakistan? Well, Pakistan was uh, as exciting as it always always is, and I managed to get an interview with Imran Khan, notable as a former cricketer and indeed the current Prime Minister, in which I asked Mr Khan about the shocking decision by the England Cricket Board not to tour. And I have to say that he came back with the true British stiff upper lip. Well, you know, I've seen the evolution of Pakistan-England cricket ties over the years and and with the other countries. I think that there is this... uh, still this feeling in England that they do a great favor to play for countries like Pakistan. Uh, one of the reasons is that obviously the money, money is a big player now for the players as well as for the cricket boards. Indian cricket board now is the richest cricket board in the world. The money lies in India. So India basically now controls world cricket. I mean, they do whatever they say go. No one would dare do, do that to India because they know that the sums involved, India can sort of produce much more money. So therefore, I've, I felt that it was, I think England let itself down. I didn't criticize, my, I didn't say anything. But I think England let themselves down because I expected a bit more from England. I did not expect them, you know, just uh, unilaterally without even consulting anyone. And of course, the biggest worry of protection of the foreign teams is for us. Imagine if something happens and Pakistan to a team, we are responsible. And we have one of the best intelligence agencies in the world. So I checked thoroughly. We, we had completely secured everything. I mean, in the, even the New Zealanders, they got scared and they left. But, you know, uh, in the end, I didn't really uh, comment on it. I think the teams let themselves down. I think New Zealand let itself down by just, just from the stadium cancelling a tour on something which we know was a fake news which was initiated by some Indian through uh, Singapore. We know that. And, you know, they got worried and they left. And then England, without even consulting anyone, they left. I think England let themselves down. And let Pakistan down too, because it's very important, isn't it, that after the terrible events a decade ago with the Sri Lankan team, that you've had this long period of coming back to world cricket, and then suddenly, at the very last minute, for England to turn their back on you, it was a kick in the teeth. It was, it was disappointing. But I think uh, if you, England should analyse what they've done, the England team, they should ask themselves the question: What would what would they think if some country did that to them? That when they were finally, and they had gone to that country in difficult times when no other team would tour, and and Pakistan went to England at that time when there were COVID restrictions. And then, you know, how, how would they have felt if it had happened to them? The thing that strikes me most about that conversation 
We hear a great deal about this narrative that India now controls world cricket and forces every other country to to bow to it. But this is the first time we've heard it from someone who's also a head of government of a cricket-playing nation. Very much so. I mean, he's, uh, of course, he's head of a government which is pretty well at war all the time, in a low-level war with India. So and where cricket relations have been completely broken off uh, in terms of touring each other. And so uh, there's a lot of a lot of tension. And of course, Pakistan players can't play in the Indian Premier League, for instance. And historically, cricket has been such a, a sort of way of resolving tensions between the two countries, but it's not available at the moment because Narendra Modi, effectively, it's Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, is not allowing that to happen. No, but it sounds as though the tensions are getting, in cricket at any rate, are getting worse. In, and actually they've been made worse by the England decision in a, in a certain way. Yes, it's worth bearing in mind it's not just uh, Imran Khan who said that. I mean, it's, major, it's a major part of what Michael Atherton was saying it in the Times in his very powerful trenchant articles about the England decision, that it's partly guided, it appears to be, by the greater importance of the IPL over England's cricketing relationship with Pakistan. And now I um, we have with us uh, Lingard Goulding, a school teacher of great distinction, and there's a sort of schoolmasterly tone, isn't there, in uh, Imran Khan's d- sort of a rebuke to England. You know, I had expected better of you. It's a bit like your housemaster talking to you at school, isn't it, uh, Lingard? Yes, I, I thought that George Dobell expressed the situation succinctly. I would find it hard to, to improve upon that. I sit on the fence somewhat, largely through want of sufficient knowledge. But I mean, even the, the forthcoming Ashes has been in considerable doubt until recently. Some of the players saying, oh, I don't want to go because of this, that and the other. Family reasons. And one has to have some sympathy there. Life for the modern cricketer, especially he who plays in all formats, is hard. But then life is quite hard for a factory worker also. And uh, I would have thought that if you were invited to represent your country in the ashes, that would have been one of the greatest honours. I remember having breakfast in the 2006-07 season with Alec Bedser a couple of times. And he was telling me of the trials and tribulations of those who toured in former times, you know, five weeks on a boat. Now, he was a bachelor, so perhaps it wasn't so severe for him. But for those married players, it must have been very, very tense. And of course, in those days, they weren't even allowed to bring their wives. But I I see now that the Ashes is going to go ahead, thank goodness. Whether it will uh, represent a full 100% of of the the top English players, and indeed the top Australian players, it remains to be seen. Uh, Personally, I don't don't think the Ashes uh, should have gone ahead. Uh, I think we should have waited a year till COVID is over. I, I felt that clearly if players don't want to go, give them a break. England are going to get smashed, obviously, 5-0. And you might have waited for Stokes, Wood and Archer to be back. So we've got a proper team. And the general sort of discourse from Australia is deeply unpleasant. So I, I think it's going to... I have great misgivings against this Ashes series. And I dislike the fact England dumped Pakistan and and, and and for obviously obviously once again for commercial reasons want to make this ashes series happen 
Yeah. It's the um, you know, commercial imperatives in the game at Lingard are very, very different from uh, from the series that we used to watch uh, and admire in, the, in earlier times, aren't they? It's significant that the Australian Grand Prix has been cancelled for the second time, uh, perhaps rather, as, as Peter was suggesting, it should have happened with cricket. I, I also very much have great reservations about the coach, Silverwood. He seems to me to have zero cricketing um, uh, imagination. Um, it's all based around sort of four medium-fast uh, pace men, um, not choosing Parkinson, you know, ignoring the advice of the greatest leg spinner who's ever lived, um, uh, it, and, and not choosing Parkinson. There's a lack of imagination about this team and a lack of imagination about the decision. The trouble is that the ECB and everybody who've got anything to do with it has is, is in some sort of moral abyss at the moment, uh, and we need to rearrange the whole... Their moral abyss as far as... English county game is concerned and a moral abyss as far as test match cricket is concerned. They make very bad choices and uh, and it's a tragedy, actually. It's the worst period of English cricket in my lifetime. Well, I think that's a cue for me to reiterate our invitation, open invitation to the ECB <laughs> to, uh, to reply to that uh, and um, describe what they're doing to... Um, get out of an abyss, uh, or if they think they're in an abyss. I always remember a um, regular howler that came up at school. We were confronted by an awful yawning abyss, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, which and uh, it came up regularly in, in school English lessons. Um, Lingard, it's probably, I, th I think by now we must um, move on to um, aspects of your remarkable career that we didn't cover last time round. And in particular, I'd really like to um, take up your headmastership of Headfort School. We sort of left off there just as you were about to take up this this post, which had a very important effect not only in your own life, but I'm sure on the many boys and girls that you um, that you mentored there. I'd like to ask first, Lingard, you had a you wrote a book about it, and it had a very striking title: "Your Children Are Not Your Children." Um, interesting educational philosophy. What what did you actually mean to convey by that? And where did it come from? Well, it's a quotation from the Lebanese poet, Khalil Gibran, and it goes, Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children, as living arrows, are sent forth. Wow. So the idea is that children are not possessions, and yet how hard it is not to be possessive towards them, to love completely, completely without attachment, for attachment and the slaves. Hmm. Very striking philosophy, Lingard. Very um, slightly at variance with the declared policy of a lot of British governments, which keeps emphasising... <laughs> Uh, keep emphasising parental power, parental control over your children's education, and uh, 
a lot of initiatives in English under both Labour and Conservative and coalition governments to give parents the illusion of control over their children's education. But um, as you say, mm. um, you know, you really need to do a bit better. You need to develop children, uh, children's abilities and talents in their own right. Um, Each child them. is an entity. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the, the final sentence here, that you are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. Mm. So that they, that you have a sort of umbilical connection that remains throughout life, but you must respect their individuality. Mm. And occasionally, through, throughout my history, occasionally uh, the odd parent would not respect that uh, separateness amongst the, the togetherness. It's a very, very profound poem, that. It's a really profound meditation on the relation between parents and their children. Gibran was um, described by somebody, I think, as often caught between Nietzschean rebellion, Blakean pantheism, uh, and Sufi mysticism. <laughs> Does that apply here, do you think, um, Lingard? Well, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> um, but, I mean, his... There was a lot of wisdom he wrote on so yeah. many themes, on marriage, on love and death, friendship. Um, yeah, the, I mean, The Prophet's a, f a fascinating book. It's uh, one of the most hundred most sort of read books of all time, isn't it, I believe? Is it's it? Quite, really? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, oh, Richard, by the way, has um, Lebanese roots. In fact, we're, we're planning a cricket tour of Lebanon next year and Richard is going to visit oh. his cousins. Oh, well, uh, well, I hope there's some cousins still left. Um, two of my grandparents came from the Lebanon, what became the Lebanon. Mm. Yep. It's a rather sad place at the moment. It's having, it's, it's having even more turmoil just at the moment. Um, um, let's um, head forth. It was a very notable cricket school, particularly under your leadership. How did you apply that philosophy, your children are not your children, in, um, in cricket coaching? Ah. <laughs> hmm. uh. I don't know. I, th I think the main thing was that there'd be fun. Um, and as, I think, as you suggested to me once, there, there would, of course, have been children who didn't enjoy cricket. Uh, and that's fine. There are perfectly, um, I'm told that there are other things in life. <laughs> oh, it's a famous slogan cricket is life, the rest is mere detail. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And um, on, on a couple of occasions, I would say to a child, you might enjoy your cricket more on second game, where you could sort of have a thrash around and not bother about um, the straight bat through life. And um, some just wanted to do something else. And there's always tennis and all sorts of other worthy pursuits. Mm. Um, but, but also we had a number of very, I suppose you would say very bad cricketers mm. who nevertheless had tremendous fun and enjoyed it. And it is something that you can keep doing throughout your life, really. Mm. So I, I never had any particular worry about that. That's good. The um, cricket wasn't compulsory at Hadfort, was it? So I think I, th I hope I think I'm right in saying so. Um, the players you did have of whatever ability were people who wanted to play rather than those who got stuck at third man at both ends to make up the make up the team, weren't they? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the very early days of Hadfort, I mean, it certainly was compulsory. Oh. And it but it became progressively less. Uh, oh. Every child had to do some take some physical exercise. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, if you want to go for a run or do something other, that was fine. Yeah. Also, riding, I seem to remember. I've played at Headfoot. Yes, um, indeed. And um, 
the pit that is, is as beautiful a wicket uh, as any I've played on, I'd say, except maybe the Oval. It's such a joy to play cricket at Headfoot. It must have been for you for many years. I, I remember you came and watched us last summer, Lingard, playing in Mount Juliet, another lovely yes, ground. Yes. Mm. And uh, I, one of our team overheard you issuing instructions to the leprechauns' openers. You said, mm. head down, <laughs> play straight, as in life. Oh. Big metaphors going on there. What dreadful pedantry. <laughs> An early coach said to me once, um, and unavailingly, it's a principle of batting, just four words, do it all. Feet move, head still. Don't know what you think of that one. It didn't never worked for me anyway. I usually get the, do them the other way around. Well, yes, Trescothic, Marcus Trescothic was probably of that school. He played the most elegant drives, leaving his head completely still. And mind you, one has to say sometimes his foot was left still also. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, I have a good memory of a friend, Colin Ingleby Mackenzie, mm. who was an inspirational captain of Hampshire. Absolutely. And, in, and of course, it was under his presidency of the MCC in 1998, I think, that women were for the first time permitted to, to join the club and to enter the long room at Lords. Prior to that, I think only Her Majesty and perhaps Rachel Hayhoe Flint were. were but my particular memory of, of Colin is that when he, he went to Ludgrove a couple of years before me mm. and his father, Rear Admiral Sir Alexander Ingleby Mackenzie, had a rather ropey old Wolseley motoring car. And when he drove Colin to the gates of Ludgrove on the first day of term, Colin asked him, uh, please, Dad, uh, let me walk up the drive. He worried oh. that the Wolseley would compare unfavourably with his his mates Daimlers and Bentleys and Rolls Royces and things. <laughs> we used to play Ludgrove when I was at um, when I was a schoolboy. Mm. Eagle House v Ludgrove. Um, it was quite a formerly good cricket school, actually. Um, I don't. Yeah. Um, tell us though about um, Headford cricket. I mean, you, you as 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 the headmaster, you produced you produced a sort of annual wisdom of the. The cricketers who went, you took on tour, or uh, and so on. It was fun. Um, yes, that book. It was Charles Lysett who, who graciously entitled it uh, uh, "The Headford Wisdom." It was actually called the Cicada. Um, the Cicada, you might know, it's a homopterous insect akin to a grasshopper, hence a cricket. Um, <laughs> And I uh, had various incarnations of the insect. <laughs> I've now got it, yeah. I've yes. got it, well done. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, it was well known. I mean, I, I actually, I think that Julius Caesar was aware of it. And, in fact, he said to the conspirators, Deco vetus pure, ea non est cicada. I say, old boy, that's not cricket. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, he himself having been formerly a centurion in the Roman army, he was a very decent player himself. And, and it's fairly well authenticated that in the 55 and 54 BBC seasons, he mm. did make a couple of tons against Kent, uh, representing mm. the army. Mm. And yes. of course, this was quite a long time before John Wisden uh, presented his almanac, I think in the 1860s, just upon his retirement. <laughs> so there's mm. a bit of nonsense for you. <laughs> 
So Julius Caesar brought cricket, among other benefits like straight roads, he brought cricket to England as well. Yes. Straight straight roads marked the boundaries, didn't they? Yes. The the, the cricket grounds came first and the roads came afterwards, I think. Yeah. I seem to remember there was a Victorian cricketer actually called Julius Caesar. Yes, there was. Yep. Mm. Richard, your intellect is amazing. You knew that fact. Memory for trivia, I wouldn't say intellect, but uh, yeah, that uh, suddenly came to mind. Um, then God, Hedford, I think, became co-educational uh, in the 1970s, shortly after you became headmaster. And um, I think you had... Girls in your cricket teams uh, with boys, you know, pretty pretty early on. First of all, was it any different sort of coaching and mentoring girls as cricketers compared to the boys? Did that make any difference to you? And one of your girls became a, um, you know, a celebrated Irish cricketer, didn't she? She did. I must correct you very slightly. I was working at Hedford a couple of years before I took over the reins. And my predecessor, David Wilde, said he had just married. And he stayed on a couple of years beyond his proposed retirement. And he asked me if I'd be happy for girls to be accepted. And I said I'd be be delighted. I said that I had every intention of of throwing it open um, when I took over anyway. And so there were about, I think there were four little girls before I took over as headmaster. Uh, And then it it gradually increased. And so nowadays it's about Mm. 50-50 between the genders. In those days, I'm talking now in the late 1970s, women's cricket was a fairly small thing. We had a handful of uh, young girls who who wanted to play, and several became good. And uh, you mentioned Claire Shillington. Uh, She was beyond good. Uh, She was actually captain of our first 11 in 1994. And it was quite amusing. Nobody wore helmets in those days, of course. (laughs) And she was a very attractive young lady with sort of longish hair. Um, early on in the season, she'd come out to bat at sort of number three, and there'd be some sniggering behind the stumps, you know, by the slips and the wicketkeeper. But by the return fixture at the end of the year, there was no sniggering when she came out. They knew that she was the one they had to dismiss. Uh-huh. I have a lovely memory, too, of being present at Clontarf uh, on the, her hundreds representation for Ireland. It was a game against Pakistan. And I have a photograph actually of, of Claire and her father and myself on the boundary just before the match began. And the Pakistani players were very, very gracious and um, made a little you know, a ceremony of it. That was a happy experience. A wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And you must have felt enormous pride at having helped her on her way. She had two brothers who were cricket mad too. And she grew up with them. Uh, she was younger than they. And I suspect she spent most of the time chasing the ball. <laughs> Early on, and for us, she was a very fine off-spin bowler. She gave the ball plenty of air, took a huge number of wickets. And she was perhaps primarily a bowler when she joined the Irish team. But then she had a finger injury and she completely lost uh, spin ability. And um, she dropped out from bowling altogether. She just became a very forceful opening batsman. You also spotted uh, around that time a character called Owen Morgan. Tell us about that, because I think you wrote about him when he was 12 years old. Yes. Well, we met him a couple of years. Uh, the first year, he was playing for a school called Skerries, to which I think he had no right to play because I don't think he attended. Anyway, this was a semi-final of the Leinster Under-13 competition. 
where he opened the batting, it was a 25 over game, and he made 95 not out. We never got him, I think we missed him once or twice maybe, we never got him, but nevertheless we were strong and we won that game, uh, oh. notwithstanding. The following year we reached in, he was then at a school called CUS, stands for Catholic University School, a huge school in the centre of Dublin, they had their, their grounds uh, outside the city. And that day he made 69 against us and we did actually get him out, a fine catch right on the boundary. And, and we lost that game on the antepenultimate ball of the day. But he also, as a boy, he was a very powerful bowler. He was a, a stocky young boy, broad shoulders, and he bowled at medium plus speed from a very, very short run up. And he took our first four wickets, all, all clean bowled, which was quite unusual. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we had a strong enough middle and lower order to, to rescue us to some extent. But if I may read you just a couple of lines about what I wrote in that year's Cicada. Um, Morgan is indeed a fine batsman. His innings was a pleasure to behold, although one would have wished that his flow of runs was not being scored against Edford. Yeah. He sees the ball early and hits powerfully, both straight and leg. Before this game, he had scored 70 in the Senior Cup final against 18-year-olds, and St Columbus had been happy to restrict him to 50 in the Junior Cup final under 15s, a match that ended in a tie. Against us, he hit four towering sixes, two over the pavilion at square leg into the next street, and two elegant straight drives. It is, of course, impossible and meaningless to make comparisons over half a century, but I do not recall watching such a talented 13-year-old batsman since I first played with the Nawab of Petordi, Mansur Ali Khan, in a prep school game 48 years before. The two players were totally different in physique and style. Petordi was much slighter in build, and his footwork more nearly resembled that of Fred Astaire. Morgan appears to command the bowling in like manner. Petordi went on to captain his country, India, despite a car accident at Oxford that necessitated opening his stance to bring his right eye more into play, its partner being no longer functional, he developed into a top-ranked international batsman. Let us hope that Owen Morgan's cricketing future may be as fruitful. Uh, that was in the year 2000. Mm, well, it's very prescient. Um, just thinking about that Fred Astaire comparison, you might think possibly of Owen Morgan as more of a Gene Kelly sort of dancer. Gene Kelly was a very um, much more physical dancer than, than Fred Astaire, but um, yeah. yeah. You mentioned um, helmets um, a, sh a short time ago, Lindgon. I know you have rather robust uh, views about um, about helmets for children and about health and safety sort of issues generally in, in, in children's sport. Yes, well, these days one couldn't argue along these lines, but I did have a little chapter in in that year's um, cicada entitled Helmet Heresy. <laughs> and, and the theme of the chapter is the balance of probability and proportion against the concept of that ghastly phrase, political correctness, whose issues need not be political and are rarely correct. <laughs> in particular, to inveigh against inordinate helmetry. Uh, but then I talked about various other examples, you know, how fatuous are life jackets and life rafts and are stowed beneath our seats in aeroplane. Before each flight, a hostess or steward explains in dulcet terms how we should fasten our jackets as the big ship plummets into the sea <laughs> several hundred miles an hour. Lean forward, cradle your head in your hands, that's most important. 
It can prevent you from suffering a stiff neck. <laughs> and a safety leaf that shows pictures of jolly little men and women with smiles on their matchstick faces, leaving the emergency exits on the lovely slides as they slither happily to safety on the welcoming waves. What fun. <laughs> My friends, in probability terms, that is stuff and nonsense. If you wish to go sailing on the high seas, may I recommend that you choose a boat? <laughs> if you go down in an airliner, I don't think that you need trouble with life jackets and life rafts and pretty little slides. <laughs> in the entire history of civil aviation, not a single life has been saved by life jackets or life rafts. Now, that was true when it was written in about the end of the last century. Whether it's still true, I don't know. And I just think it's so sad, not only with children, but with all cricketers. You can't see a batsman now, they all look the same. And the probability of being seriously hurt, yes, it's there. And I mean, I, mean, I know that there are dangers in cricket. I mean, Ian Botham had five stitches once uh, whilst opening a champagne bottle after the match. So it <laughs> is a dangerous game, <laughs> but less dangerous than... Anyway, one wouldn't dare nowadays permit a young batsman to, 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 go, out, uh, to go out onto the field without a helmet. Yep. It's all a matter of the litigatory society in which we live. Hmm. What are your views about um, limitations on the number of overs that young bowlers can bowl? Yeah, looking through old Hedford scorebooks, <laughs> I, I found an example of, of a boy who bowled 24 straight overs. A very considerable pace, and um, he became a very good friend. And it, it hardly surprised me that that he was in the hands of osteopaths for much of his adult life. But as always, the, the the powers that be they overreact, and now children can only bowl a four-over spell, seven in a day. Now, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, we we bowled in the nets hours and hours. Um, it, it didn't ruin all of our backs, as far as I know. I just think the restrictions, yes, I think they were necessary, but I think they're far too extreme. Mm. In India and in Pakistan, you still see, it's still common to see quite small children sort of bowling all day if, if you let them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. There's a lot of concern at the moment in, in many countries about a very bad culture of, um, of cricket for children and young people. We hear about... And you, I've seen it in England. Um, verbal abuse, intimidation, mm. parents who are drunk and abusive, umpires. Um, just wondered if you'd seen evidence of this kind of behaviour and whether you had any remedies for it, because I don't think you ever, I'm sure you wouldn't have ever stood for it. No, I don't think we can blame cricket entirely for that. I mean, I think of people like Joss Verstappen, the father of uh, Max Verstappen, the Presently, the fastest racing driver in the world. I mean, Josh Verstappen at, at a go kart meeting once when his son was performing, he smashed a chap and, and broke his skull. Um, so, <laughs> the way children behave, it, 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 they, they copy their parents, don't they? I don't think cricket's worse than other games. I mean, I've been to football games, rugby games. R rugby parents at schools can be very bad. Um, Australian rules parents can be very bad, but really, if the parents know how to behave, very often their children do. It's not an absolute. Do I have a solution? Uh, no. I mean, a couple of times I have stopped a game and gone across and spoken to a parent, but really, within the Hedford culture, there's very little of that. Good. 
imagine. No, there's a lovely feeling, yeah. Lovely mm. feeling at Headford. I'd like to ask an op- the opposite question. We've had a lot of testimony on the podcast that um, um, cricket has a special power to help troubled children. We heard that particularly in relation to the in the podcast we did on the wonderful Osama project in Lebanon, where cricket helped to rehabilitate teenage Syrian boys and girls who escaped war and ISIS terror. And just wondered if you'd observed any of that effect um, in your very varied cricket journeys, Lingard. Uh, yes, I think the, the child who is happy in his cricket is very often happy in his overall life. I think a, a promising musician would derive probably as much um, mental benefit as, as a fine cricketer. But I certainly wouldn't deny that it, it's that a commitment to any activity, certainly cricket, must be beneficial in, in a mental sense. Maybe we can talk, uh, Lingard, about your very extensive experience as a coach in, uh, in Australia, uh, including very rec- up to very recently you've been coaching there. Mm. You're continuing to do so. I mean, what are what are the differences between the uh, Aussies and us? Interesting. And I was so fortunate uh, when I went back to Australia for the first time in 2001. I wanted to play a bit of cricket, and I rang a club. It was actually, I'd been to one or two other clubs, but without being too enamoured, rang this particular club. And I suppose because I was born during the war in England, and I went to school for ten years, and my mother was English. I sound perhaps slightly more English than Irish. And they thought at the end of the line, ah, this could be a promising young Englishman come out to help us, you know. I finished the conversation by saying, I I think I probably should warn you that I am a 61-year-old Irishman. And I heard um, giggles in the back of the room. Uh, But that club, Goodwood Cricket Club, it has been a huge part of my life, the latter part of my life. Uh, It's just so well run. I was a president there for uh, many, many years called Red Emil, who was just such a master of integrating members of the club. And his successors now, Warwick Potts, Jason Scroop, uh, absolutely magnificent. They do everything for that club. And it's grown so much. I mean, at present, we're fielding five two-day teams, and I think it's three uh, one-day teams every week. And also, we have about 12 or 14 junior teams. So the the year I was there for half season, 2001, and uh, through good fortune, I made a few runs and got the odd victim. And when I was home, I was invited to come out and coach. And uh, I couldn't accept for a couple of years because I'd promised my successor, Dermot Dix, that I would work at the school for another three years. But then I went back and for the next 12, 13 years, I was coaching up to 12 junior teams, children aged between eight and 18 basically. Uh, and it was great fun. Now, what difference were there? Uh, it was more in their culture. And of course, I was teaching more in a community club. <laughs> I remember one day, uh, but all the children came along with a cricket bag, which contained all their equipment. When I was a boy, we had a communal bat, communal pads and gloves. Uh, and it was a great occasion. I was probably 13 or 14 when I had my own bat for the first time. But every one of these little children has their own helmet and everything. So they are that much more serious about their cricket. Uh, many of these children will tell you the latest world, world scores and um, how they think the Australian team should be selected. 
You had some memorable encounters in Australia with um, some great players. One of them was Cole Hooper, wasn't he? But you've encountered Cole Hooper on the squash court. Yeah, yeah. We met firstly. We were both coaching at a school called St Peter's College, and um, yeah, Carl was. He became a very good friend, and we played squash. I suppose I was was up to seventy four or so, and he would by then he would have been about fifty four, I think. He's a big man, Carl. It didn't do to get stuck behind him. <laughs> so it was very important to, to remain on the tee. But we used to play for hours. I remember we played for one and three quarter hours once. And uh, he used to, he used to play with um, Jeff Dujon, the former mm. West Indian wicketkeeper. And uh, he hit the ball mighty hard. But he was great fun. And, and he, he attended a, a, a party that I was at um, only a few months ago. Mm. Who was the better squash player, you at 74 or Carl Hooper at 54? I imagine you were both pretty formidable. Back a couple of years, when I was, say, 71 and he was 50, I just had the edge. But then uh, the um, the balance shifted, and uh, by last time my lungs were getting pretty ropey, and he beat me the last uh, two times. <laughs> Another name I caught in your sort of CV was Neil Dancy. He had a long career as a Sheffield Shield batsman, but then he became a top administrator of South Australia. Yes. And also saw a reputation as the fastest eater in Australia. Did you ever did you ever see any evidence of that? Well, I did, because I've eaten many times. Uh-huh. He's known as Nodder, because he, he tended to sort of nod off. But yes, he was remarkable. He, sadly, his wife died when she was about 50, and Neil is now 93, and, and unfortunately he's in a home now, but still visitable. Uh, yes, he made 185 against Queensland one there. That was his highest score. And there was an indoor school at the Adelaide Oval called the Dancy and Flavel School, named after him and um, uh, Flavel, who was an opening batsman for South Australia also, who actually played a game or two for Australia. Mm, Favel, I think it's Favel, isn't it? Um, you know, rather, I think you put an L into his name. Um, uh, maybe Les, I Les, Fa- Les Favor, I think, was his name. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But, uh, yeah. He, um, Neil Dancy, so he was the last man to partner Don Bramman in, in club cricket. That was at the Kensington Oval up in Norwood, very, very near to where I was living recently. And uh, when Bradman was out, and there was a huge crowd, of course, because everybody knew that it was his last club, club innings. Huge crowd. And when he was given out, I don't know whether it was caught behind or LBW, the crowd roared their disapproval and they all buggered off to the pub. And poor old Neil was left uh, to complete his innings on his own. Hmm. <laughs> it was quite, yeah. quite an occasion, it was. Yeah. yeah. In showbiz terms, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to follow Don, Don Bradman as the, um, you know, on, on the variety bill. Hmm. No, I never met him, I'm afraid. He, I watched my first test match at the Oval in 19... 19- 50, uh, which was the West Indies, and three W's and um, mm. Ramadan. Ramadan. Uh, Ramadan Valentine, mm. yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But so, you know, sadly, you never, you, you, never, um, you never met Bradman, never saw him, no. never saw him in action? No. My uh. former boss in New South Wales, Jim Scarf, he had seen him and, and sort of worshipped at the shrine. Talking of worshipping at the shrine, there was another fascinating man called Rockley Wilson, who was a highly regarded schoolmaster at Winchester for 43 years, I think. And he, during that time, of course, he he coached some 
very fine players, including Douglas Jardine. And when Jardine had been appointed to the England captaincy, uh, somebody asked him, you know, how do you think he'll do? And he said, well, he might win us the ashes, but lose us the dominion. <laughs> <laughs> and this was before the body lines. Yes. Probably well before, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> and another, two other nice stories about Rockley. He was called up to join Johnny Douglas. What was he? J.W.H.T. Douglas. You'd think he was a Sri Lankan with all those initials. Johnny, Johnny won't hit today, they called him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Mm. That was, mm. I think, the tour in 1921. And uh, he got one test match, but he was already 41 years old. And, but he'd made, in the previous season, he'd taken a lot of wickets. He was given time off from, um, from Winchester uh, to, get, to go on that tour. But he was a, a great worshipper of uh, Dr. Grace, and he, he applied a, a magnificent plaque to the outside door of his downstairs lavatory uh, <laughs> with the initials WG. <laughs> so this is your cricket teacher at Winchester. He, he, well, about, no, yeah. he retired long before I, I turned up. Oh, right, yes. But he was a... Another time a child was running down the corridor at Winchester and crashed into Rockley and the child said, oh, good God. And Wilson said, yes, but strictly incognito. <laughs> <laughs> His brother played for Yorkshire, I seem to remember. Rockley played for Rockley Wilson played for Yorkshire as, a, uh, as yes, an amateur, did. as a, didn't he? I think he was a slow left arm bowler. That was what got him onto the... Yes, he started as hmm. a... Wasn't he? Oh, no, no. Yes, no, you're, you're quite right. Mm, mm, mm. Wilson was actually the... Rockley Wilson was the second oldest player to mm. make it, to, to be a debutante um, for English, That's for right. England. 41. 41, yeah. Mm. He, wasn't, he wasn't a very popular figure in the... He was not an establishment figure at all, was he, Rockley Wilson? He, he often, I think he clashed with authority once or twice. He became unpopular because while he was on that tour in Australia, he sent reports back. Um, he was sort of yeah. sending the news... And, and this was uh, not regarded as correct conduct. Hmm. Hmm. I, I think he got quite a rough, frosty reception, didn't he, um, Link up when he went back to England from Lord Harris? Yes, exactly. Yes, not, not the easiest of gentlemen. Hmm. Yes, he's apparently, he, he, when he bumped into him in the long room, he, he got the most cursory of handshakes. Yeah. <laughs> and, after, and, and remarked as he left, Lucky to get a touch, really. Lucky <laughs> to get a touch. Yes. Lingard, I have another note in front of me with the name of Eileen Ash in front of it. Yes. I, I never met her, but I, I first became aware of her about five years ago when Heather Knight, former England captain, did a wonderful YouTube of her doing her weekly yoga performance. And uh, she was the most remarkable woman at the age of 105, she passed her driving test. One year later, she was taken up in a flight in a tiger moth. And last year, at 109, she was the first person to receive uh, coronavirus vaccination. And uh, in a couple of weeks' time, she will reach 110. So she is, of course, by far the oldest test player. She only played a few, few test matches. She was primarily a bowler. And I think uh, she may only have played one test. I'm not quite sure. And I think she took a few wickets. I didn't think there were that many tests in those days. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. I mean, this would have been 1937, I think. I think she played before and after the war. And she had, a very, she had a very interesting war record in intelligence, as I recall. 
I think she was an MI6. She became an MI6 officer. Yes. Yes. Which is an amazing life. And um, 109-year-old international player is um, perhaps a um, a fitting note to end on, Lingard, because I'm sad to say we've we've run out of time. We've got so many more great cricketers that you've met and so many more um, topics uh, we could cover with you. And uh, it's been absolutely enthralling talking to you again. Well, it's always a pleasure talking cricket, particularly with gentlemen such as you, who are so knowledgeable. And of course, and then, and I, I trust Richard. You, I don't think you've yet graced County Mees with your presence. I hope that Peter will entice you along next time he brings his worthy team across to Ireland. Well, thank you. He did entice me this year, but I got snagged by COVID, I and mean, I couldn't uh, prove that I'd had two jabs at the airport. Yeah, I got stuck at Stansted as a result. So. Uh, very frustrating. Yep. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Over here, the weather is still grey, but at least it's not raining. And over here in Wiltshire, I can't tell you how lovely it is to look at the sun bathing the trees on this lovely autumn day. Uh, sadly, it's not bathing them here in southeast London, where I, Richard Heller, are saying goodbye. <laughs>